This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Congress brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast. I am Jason Mann and with me as always is Rich Krejci. Rich, great to be back with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited about this show. It's a, uh, a larger project from the HP Network that we're... Uh getting ourselves into and, and it's gonna be a lot of fun it's something we've uh a topic and a, and a you know a book in particular that we've been talking about for a long time about doing something and it, it's kind of sort of coincided with an hp project so it's pretty cool yeah how it um, all kind of came together yeah the uh we're talking about the uh, breaks of the game it is part of the hp big summer read uh discussion which uh if you're listening to this and it's still august 2015 you can go to hardwoodparoxysm.com and it should be right at the uh, top there uh, a lot of great discussion about the book there which i encourage everyone to uh, check out and join in if they uh feel the need and uh we for this prestigious podcast have two great guests um First, uh, returning to the program is uh, Curtis Harris of ProHoopsHistory.com. Curtis, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. And uh, first-time guest, he um, is behind the uh, NBA uh, Injury Report podcast, the co-host of that podcast, and also the uh, hilarious Twitter account of the uh, same name. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, um, so breaks of the game. It focuses on the uh, the story specifically of the 1979-1980 Trailblazers. They're three seasons removed from the title and two seasons removed from a Bill Walton injury that uh, one of several injuries, but a final injury that changed the course of the franchise that led to a downward spiral of him. Um, missing the season and then suing the Blazers doctors and then moving on to San Diego, the uh, 
Blazers and their coach, uh, Jack Ramsey, are trying to move on from the ghosts of a championship season and uh, finding what more could have been. And it also tells a larger story of the NBA at the time, dealing with changing power dynamics between players and management, how the NBA has shifted from majority white to majority black league within the last decade, decade and a half, how expansion has changed the economics of the NBA and how what's going on in the NBA is also parallel to uh, changes in society. And, you know, I, I think the key theme of the book is that, you know, as progress has occurred, something has been lost and uh, it applies to both basketball and to um, American life at large. So um, this is obviously a um, seminal work of NBA history, considered by a lot of people to be one of the um, the, the best books in NBA history. So um, we'll we'll start with James. James, you know, just kind of what are some of your, like your overall thoughts on breaks of the game? Um, well, that's that's how do I how do I tackle that question? <laughs> the one, <laughs> um, the, I mean, the one thing I thought was. It's in, I, I wonder if this book would be received the same way if it were released today. Um, no doubt, you know, it's an impressive, like, work of reporting. You know, he, he had a ton of access. Um, but when I was reading it, I, it had been built up for me. I, I This is my first time reading it. Um, and I'd heard about it for many years, um, you know, in Bill Simmons' column and outside of that as well. But it had, it had come with such a reputation. And then I read it. And, you know, there's there's great access. There's great anecdotes. But I don't know. I, I feel like I was expecting like the great American novel or something um, like not, not like the prose itself didn't necessarily like blow me away. Um, I, and I haven't read like a ton of sports books. I'm wondering if you guys like how does this stack up for you overall? Just like very broad stroke. Do you think it lives up to that, that reputation? I don't know. I've, I've read a lot of sports books, um, mostly basketball, but um I think this book was one of the better ones uh, be- because it gave a lot of anecdotes. Um, I have problems with it, but it's great. Uh, it's great redeeming value that it does have just tons and tons of anecdotes and just um, just tons of stories for people to read and kind of uh, take as a starting point to have a conversation about what the NBA was like at that period. Uh, so I wouldn't take it as as like. Uh, you know, it's not the greatest book ever written in basketball <laughs> history, but it just provides like just like, like I said, to so many stories for you to like start going dovetailing off of to figure out what was happening at that time period. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, oh yeah. sorry. Go ahead, Kurtz. Uh, yeah, I guess my, my big complaint about the book is the lack of um, let's call it segmentation. Uh, it's just one like gigantic monologue. It just doesn't stop. Um as someone who like you know got a history degree, I appreciate having like chapters and an index and stuff like that. Uh, but it's just like page one straight through to the end. Um, you got to have your book marked out and pens ready to mark off interesting things because you just know chapters or index to help you out on that. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's actually what screwed me. I, I went back and re you know I I reread it. I read it many 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 years ago and, and reread it for this project or whatever. And I forgot that there was no chapters or whatever. So I I usually don't read books with bookmarks because I just sort of get to a chapter and then I remember what chapter it is. And I like I kind of always have liked doing that. I don't like finishing in the middle of a chapter. I have like a weird OCD about that. So for this one, there was like the first time I sat down and reread it. I was like fifty pages in and I'm like, oh my god, like when do we? Like I was like, all right, like I'll I'll stick with it. Like when are we gonna get to? It? And then I was like, you know what? Let me see how long this chapter is gonna be. You know, you do that like <laughs> it's like the school 
thing. It's like when you have a school book project, and you're like, this thing sucks. Like, how many more pages or whatever? And then you go through and you go, and I, I was going, I went, oh, uh, damn it. All right. So I got to get a bookmark. But uh, that's, 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 you know, not a huge issue. But my, my biggest. Takeaway, I, I think as far as like when you when you look at it as an overall sports book, and I, I've read plenty of sports book, uh, mostly baseball and basketball. As far as this one goes, I think, I don't know if it's the best I've ever read, but it's definitely up there. And I think one of the big things that you you, you kind of get with it, and obviously why we're going to you know be here and talk about this for a while, is that there's just so many characters, so many guys, and, and the way that it's set up as well is just, it, it's different than a lot of other sports books you're going to see in terms of you're just getting so much thrown at you, which which is good and bad. I mean, it's, sometimes it's a little overwhelming, but at the same time, I mean, other sports books will focus on a team and yeah, you'll get through a few of the guys and then that's it, but it'll mostly talk about that team and those guys and in that moment or whatever. And that's sort of, you know, you get the idea that Breaks of the Game is just that, where it talks about this Blazers. But then when you read every single guy, and they basically do the life story of, like, almost every single guy mm-hmm. that, that's a major player on the team. You know, coaching staff players, you know, guys, you know, freaking equipment managers, trainers, like, you know, stuff like that. So when you when you take that into account and the fact that he's got all these things, you know, coming together and coming into one giant book. I mean, it, it's from that standpoint of, like, a literary, you know, what he was able to do to kind of weave these stories in together and how he, you know, put them together. I think it makes it pretty incredible. I don't think it, I, I don't know if I could say it's my favorite sports book I've ever read, but it's certainly up there as far as sports books. I, I, I don't think, yeah, it's like not the great American novel or anything like that, but right. it, it's, it's certainly up there in terms of like sports books. Cause a lot of times sports will be very hyper-focused, very on one thing. This, this was a large work. This was a lot of stuff, you know, coming at you in, you know, 400 pages or whatever, you know, it is. If I could jump back in just for one second, I actually, I, I thought the decision to make it chapterless was really smart. And I thought it echoed, you know, this, long slog of the regular season that he keys in on over and over again the 82 game season and how it's a new thing and how it's destroying the players and it's too much for anyone to get through like i thought the form of it was like very consciously kind of it was written that way to almost to almost be over overwhelming um and then i did like the backstories just because it, it almost reminded me of lost like you meet all these characters and then you slowly I don't know if you guys have seen that show. I don't want to take us too far afield, but then you like you, you get the backstory for everyone, like kind of little by little. It keeps you engaged. It gives you like just enough, and then like pulls back and then comes back to them later. So I thought the way he structured the book was actually one of the better elements of it for me. Yeah, I I think the book um, like I didn't necessarily have the same sort of issue like with the with the structure. But I can see where you're coming from, and it's sometimes nice to have it be organized a little bit more. But I. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I think it makes it somewhat more of an imposing read than it needs to be, because I do think like it's it's actually a pretty, you know, easy, fairly easy to read book. You know, it's not, um, you know, it's it's sparse, but still, you know, well put. It's it's well written. It's engaging. Um, It's not, you know, the most beautiful prose, but it's certainly, um, you know, well done. So, but I, I do think maybe that that sort of makes it feel bigger than it is. I mean, obviously a long book and there's a lot of good, um, stories and, you know, he, he brings, I mean, I, I think he does a real good job of capturing, you know, the, 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 the large scale of what's happening in the league. I mean, obviously the, the blazers and, or former blazers are the, um, you know, the main characters of the story, but there certainly is, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot more talked about than, um, than that. I mean, there's, um, you know, kind of the aftermath of the, of the ABA, there's, um, you know, the evolution of the players union, there's the history of national TV gr- growth. Um, even a little bit about burden magic as rookies. I mean, there's, uh, uh, Marvin Barnes, you know, Moses Malone, there's a lot, lot of good stuff going on. 
So um, yeah, kind of getting into some of the key personalities of the book, um, I, I, I think the central figure is uh, Bill Walton, who um, was, of course, the, the centerpiece of that Trailblazers team. Just, you know, an incredible center with uh, superbly skilled but dealt with injuries um, throughout most of his career that really prevented him from, you know, reaching even, um, you know, um, a percentage of really what he could other than a couple of um, great seasons and then kind of a late uh, rebirth with the Celtics as a role player, you know, just didn't have, you know, what he could, but just, you know, the incredible court vision, the passing, the shot blocking, you know, playmaking was just a, you know, for a brief time was arguably maybe the best center um, in the NBA. Although uh, I I think there's, there's definitely that's sort of said and, and without, I, I think there's a couple other guys who in the league at that point who uh, definitely had a you know maybe even a stronger case than Walton, but he, you know he's certainly in that conversation. And um, you know I, I think there's a lot of interesting things about him, kind of the um, you know also having you know the being a radical liberal, uh, well radical liberal maybe he's um, you know, at least compared to the you know the the button down NBA you know. Um, uh, he was a hippie. He was a vegetarian. Um, you know, when these things were much more unusual than um, th- than they are today. Um, and I-, I think the way that it kind of portrays him relating to his teammates and the way that it kind of portrays the locker room dynamics of um, Jack Rams- Jack Ramsey being, you know, pretty stern, you know, kind of being a taskmaster yet in subtle ways, you know, seeding things to Walton and how that kind of drove a wedge between um, Walton and the team and then sort of led to, um, you know, once Walton felt betrayed by the medical staff and feeling questioned by teammates leading to him, you know, driving a wedge uh, between those guys. So, um, Kurt, I'll start with you. What do you what did you kind of think about um, the way that Walton was portrayed here? I find Walton's story pretty interesting just because, um, like you said, he's this is guy that's, you know, very liberal, uh, the hippie, long hair, still goes to Grateful Dead concerts. Um, but, you know, it's, it's this free-spirited guy, but he's clearly got all this talent, and he's the best player on the team. So uh, it's like this – you get this kind of expectation and swagger when you're the best player on the team, like things are going to be run your way. Uh, which that kind of runs counter to being a hippie and a you know the, the free spirit type that you want everybody to fall in line and what you're what you're doing. Um, so I think that might be a, a, kind of like the uh, the starting point for his like friction with the teammates because after he got the injury, the teammates were ready to like pounce and say like, well, you know, uh, is he faking it or is it not that bad or should he be out there playing? Why isn't he like toughing it out or anything like that? Um, so I think that 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 left this idea of him, what he wanted to see himself as ran counter to the talent that he had. And his teammates, you know, were just, as I said, just quick to pick up on this fact that he wasn't, um, it's just this complex thing. I, I'm having a hard time ex- expressing it, but, um, yeah, like it's, it's just the, the amount of talent that he had and his leftist ideas. Just, I, I feel like there's just like intrinsic conflict between those two things. Like if you're that talented, you can't be like egalitarian on a basketball court to the, to purest degree and have everybody follow line and love you, especially when your foot gets hurt, you can't play anymore. And uh, the, the thing just, just falls apart as it did in the book. Yeah. Walton's story for me was just like, it was just super dark. Like he had to wind up. <laughs> I mean, obviously the career cut short is the obvious thing, but then um, he had to like 
basically go against everything that he purportedly stood for at some point. Like, there's the whole part about how he didn't want to take shots. He thought it was, you know, betraying, like, you know, the signals that his body was telling him, you know, which is true. You're in pain. Your body's telling you to stop. Um, So he didn't want to do that. Winds up doing that. Um, The whole he becomes a born-again capitalist thing was, like, super dark. Like, like, how much was he, like, (laughs) searching for, you know some meaning in life that maybe had been stripped from him when, you know, cause this is, uh, he'd already been suffering with his foot injuries for a while. And they have this whole section about how he goes to San Diego and starts wearing suits and talking about being a capitalist and, uh, on a very minor level, having to ditch his beloved vegetarianism to gain some weight, to put on muscle was, I thought a little sad as well. So it really like ran the gamut of like things he had to give up in order to like pursue this one dream of his, which I guess was partially why, Jack Ramsey loved him so much because that, I mean, this is, I don't know, there was a lot of dark themes in this, like, but I thought one of the starkest ones was just, like, the emotional toll of, you know, what it takes to be great. And Jack Ramsey talking about how he wants people who are single-mindedly, you know, focused on on basketball. And from a caring about these people's, like, soul perspective, maybe not the, you know, uh, best approach to take. But if you want the most successful team, like, maybe it is. And what does that say about just, like, what it means to be successful in any endeavor? But, you know, specifically sports in this case. So, yeah, I thought there was sadness. There was a deep <laughs> sadness imbued throughout the entire book, I thought. Bittersweet. Yeah, bitter yeah, Walt was an interesting character for me because there were points, in, and I don't know if you guys sort of got this vibe, and I'm, I'm sure where, we're, you know, throughout the book, there's times where you sort of really feel bad for him and other times where you don't. And then it, it's very weird, whereas a lot of the guys, I sort of pretty early in their, their chapter or whatever, their section rather, sort of decide, hey, I really like this guy or, hey, you know, this isn't really my type of guy or whatever. You know what I mean? Whereas Bill Walton is a guy who throughout, like, I'll read one page and be like, oh, you know, he sounds like a really cool dude. And really, and then, like, the next page, you know, something will happen, like the boarding and capitalism thing. Or you sort of see that he's being, uh, you know, hypocritical as far as how this goes. And he's very weird for me. I never could quite find a... a, a you know, when it was over, I couldn't really reconcile myself with, okay, do, do I really think Bill Walton's a good guy or a bad guy? Like, I, I still don't even know if I know that. And, like, I think deep down he's a good guy, but he did weird stuff throughout. It, it was He was just a, a weird character. I think most others in this book I was able to very easily say, okay, I really enjoy this guy. I like this guy. And most I did like. I mean, there's very few people in this book that I think I, like, kind of give an eye roll to or anything like that. But he, he was one that I, I don't quite know. And I'm not sure if, if, if you know, David, that was his his goal is to make him sort of a conflicted character or what, but, but I, I at least got that vibe. I don't know if anybody else sort of picked up on that either. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you, you definitely kind of see like the conflict. Like I, I thought it was interesting how, you know, there, there was sort of the stuff where you try to be of the team and be part of the team and, and, and be friendly, but he's also like ribbing guys who are like clearly like way inferior players and just kind of like almost picking on them just because he could just mm-hmm. kind of being a bully, which I thought was ir- ironic because at the end of the book um there's a story about um they're they're at a clippers game and they're having like a you know like a fan costume contest it's around halloween i guess and then there's a fan who dresses up like you know like as walton but like in a cast and having some sort of like some sort of sign making fun of him and then like he ends up um winning that contest and you know the the crowd's like laughing and walton is at the game in in a suit and just really embarrassed but i thought like that was just a little bit of, of karma for the way that like Walton had treated other guys during the game. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, Walton's definitely a, a, a complex guy. I mean, you know, most of us are, you know, somewhat good and somewhat bad. So, um, 
it, it makes sense that he'd be there. I, I think the, the the two things that I thought were kind of stood out as, as being interesting for me is when it talked about like his, um, a, you know, game day preparation where like hours in, like he would like, he would listen to the dead and he would like actually like picture like actions in the game in his head and, you know, and what he would do in certain things, like when he would make the pass or when he would cut to the basket or, or, or whatever. And that reminds me a lot of, I, I also, for people who don't know, I also do a podcast about Alfred Hitchcock films called the Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcast. And it reminds me of Hitchcock's approach of like, um, basically, um, scripting out every single action, you know, in his head and putting it on the page to where, you know, the, the actual film, filming of the of the movie he already knew everything was going to be happening ahead of time because he had you know basically all drawn out it, it kind of reminded me of um of that and just kind of shows like the level of basketball genius that walton was to be able to you know, just kind of see things um that way and then, and then another thing that was i thought was kind of funny was which shows sort of the competitive edge for him and and just uh the, the hippie stuff is at, days after winning the championship in 77, he ends up playing a pickup game on an Indian reservation against a team led by Phil Jackson. It's it just this casual thing, but he's like playing it like it's, the, you know, game seven of the championship. I mean, he's he's out there and, he, and he, he, you know, he still like has that huge competitive drive, even in that environment. And, you know, hanging out with Phil Jackson in 1977 seems like a, you know, <laughs> interesting situation. So. <laughs> Uh, man, but yeah, Rich, you were talking about you know how you didn't know what to think about Walton, and I think I'm like, well, maybe he's just the most well drawn character in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe him or Ramsey, maybe because like most people, like if you really know everyone's you know <laughs> deepest thoughts and what they've done right and wrong throughout their life, like you you are going to be conflicted. Like it's hard to say someone is like sure. good or bad unless they're you know the obvious markers in history of like dictators and stuff like that. So. Um, and we also forgot the. I don't think anyone's mentioned yet the the sad tale of when he turns on his. Is it Coop? Which what's the name of the doctor friend on the team, who he had like given a motorcycle to? The Culp. I never knew how to pronounce it. It's Culp. I think it was Culp. Yeah. I forgot his first name though, but Culp. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to make sure we didn't let this pass without. No, and that's one of the ones where I was like, "Heck, you're an asshole." I was like, "I hate you, Bill Wall." And then like a few pages later, I was like, "Okay, never mind. You're okay." But yeah, that w- that was one of the biggest ones that 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 I really was like, "Oh man, I really don't know if I like Bill Wall anymore." Like, yeah. like the whole book, I was on your side, dude. Now I don't know. Now you're kind of weird, but yeah, I get. It. I was trying to see that charitably. I'm like, you know, maybe if you are like one of the best people in the world at something, and it's taken from you, you give them a little bit oh, more sure. slack in terms of how they react. I mean, it's sad you know but yeah. I'm, I'm wondering like how would i how would i respond in that situation like would i lash out at someone especially because you lose track because these guys make so much money and like they're so tall and stuff but they're also young you know yeah um, uh, ron culp he was the uh yeah the, that's the, the, the trainer yes so yeah i mean he ended up being close with both the culp the uh the trainer and uh and, and the team doctor who i i'm blanking on his name but um but i i mean i you know, i'm it's hard to kind of obviously we weren't there, but it's hard to kind of see where at the point, like Walton is culpable for, I mean, obviously he's, you know, he's responsible for his own actions and he apparently approved all the, um, you know, the painkillers and the medical treatment that they were giving him. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I think this book that does a nice job of pointing out the pressures that he felt in that situation and, and like the, the way that maybe, you know, just the conflict that a team doctor or team trainers would have being more loyal to the team than, than loyal to the, um, than loyal to the player. Mm -hmm. 
And that's, of course, a problem right. even today. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a huge issue. Like, as you're just mentioning that, I was thinking, like, just the phrase, you know, conflict of interest. It's like you're the team's medical doctor and you're, as just a pure doctor or a medical, you know, professional, you're supposed to uh, do what's best for the patient. But if you're getting paid by the team, you know, you, you're, your, other, your other job is make sure that those players are ready to go out there and perform for the team. So if you don't do that in the team's mindset, uh, you're not going to be the doctor for too much longer. So, um, yeah, that's obviously still a problem in the NBA, but really a huge problem in the NFL, as we all know. But, um, yeah, Walton definitely is the case of that. You know, he it's, it's really hard to say whether he or when he should have had his foot surgery at the, um, and should have got that taken care of. But, you know, the doctor, he had the conflict of interest, too. He had to keep his job and get Walton healthy to play for the team. Otherwise, he was going to be out of there. Uh, or as close to healthy as possible, I guess we can say, or else he was going to be out of there. Sure. And, and it's possible to, you know, to care about both the players and the team. And it, 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 it's obviously just, I mean, it just creates the situation. Even if you're doing it well, you're just facing that, those tensions. And, um, and yeah, conflict of interest is exactly right. Um, uh, you know, the other, um, st- I guess the biggest star of that, uh, you know, those late 70s Blazers teams was uh, Maurice Lucas. Uh, who uh, came from the uh, ABA to immediately um, lead that uh, Blazers championship team along with Walton. I, I thought it was interesting how it talked about the the two of them um, sort of managing to divide their turf before the uh, title season. You know, Lucas kind of serving as the enforcer for Walton and sort of filling in some of the gaps of, you know, toughness and rebounding and, um you know, the, the things that Walton wasn't necessarily as good at Lucas, you know, was there to absolutely, um, you know, be basically the perfect compliment to him. And, um, and, uh, Halberstam describes him as, and I'll quote, um, very black, very articulate, very political, a strong and independent man sprung from circumstances that could be, could also create great insecurity. And, and that, that's sort of what he's going through during this season. I mean, he is been underpaid relative to his talent for several seasons, you know, signed a deal coming out of the ABA that, you know, what was not a smart long-term deal. In fact, the Blazers were, you know, sort of, um, you know, almost uh, forerunners for kind of the strategy of um, signing players to um, long-term contracts, but for relatively low money, and then only the first couple years of that being guaranteed. So basically, they were you know completely in favor of you know um, team contracts. So you know he's unhappy with his salary, and he uh, with his salary, and he's totally willing to push the boundaries of the team, particularly with Ramsey and with. Uh, management and um you know it, it kind of creates a uh a difficult situation for the for the team to be under and certainly one difficult one for him to be under as well and he's he's constantly under trade rumors as well so that's kind of you know the the, the tension that's going on during the season what do you guys make of um you know weinberg in general i mean i'm thinking about it as it relates to you know lucas and like his contract because they, they make a big deal out of he, he you know, he refuses to renegotiate. And he says, well, I've never done that in my other business. Um, do you think Halberstam, um, do you think he's taken him at his word? Or does he think that he just knows he can get away with it? So, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he claims this is principled stance, but 
isn't it kind of easier in some ways to just see like, well, if he thinks he can get away with not paying them more money, that's what he's going to do because he's a businessman. Yeah, I took it as purely just a business like, you know, we, we just don't want to set the precedent or we don't want to, um, you know, it doesn't matter. That's not fair. That's the contract you agreed to. And that's the one that we're going to do. You know, I, I didn't really see it as much more than that. I, I saw it as something he could get away with as an owner um, and and wasn't necessarily like compromising his co- moral code or anything like that. So I thought that I, that's kind of where, where I stood on it. Okay. It just seemed to me like um, he, they were like he was trying to make it almost like a moral stand. Like this is just how I conduct business. Where like I don't think he really believed that. I don't know. I, like I, I'm very distrustful of anyone who can rise to that level of power and like <laughs> the motives behind anything that they say. So you know if it's going to benefit his pocket, then he's going to say that. Where you know I don't know. Like that's an easy thing. I, I just couldn't tell if if the author of of our tale believed him or not. Um, yeah, and, and that becomes a problem. I think. In general, it's one of my biggest issues with the book is I, I sort of feel like he's always almost more on the side of – and that's – to be fair, I, mean, I think that's not really a you know, hot take that he's more on the side of the management and more on the side of the coaches and that sort of stuff and less on the players. So, yeah, as far as the story of Lucas and, and those contract negotiations whatever, I, I always kind of take it for – because – it's hard to know who's giving him the most access because and, – and that's the thing that if you're – you know it, for people who do any sort of journalism, you always tend to sort of be, you know, pulled in both directions, you know, potentially if, if you're looking on a story like that and maybe, you know, who's ever giving you a little bit more, you know, or making it easier, your job easier or whatever might get a little more beneficial. But I always felt throughout the book and especially I think uh, this Lucas situation, I felt like he always sort of seemed to sort of paint Lucas and, and, and Weinberg in their sort or uh, uh, Lucas, um, you know, in his little camp and, and his way and then sort of Weinberg and the other guys in, in there. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sort of. I, I didn't I, when it was over. I still quite wasn't sure where I stood in terms of that, mm-hmm. you know, negotiations and, and who was in the right, who was in the wrong, or or if both were right, both were right. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot more to it, obviously, but yeah, I always sort of felt like you know, Havisham was sort of more pro management, pro coaches, less you know, anti not anti player, but more of the pro coaches, more pro management. But mm-hmm. that's at least, and and I think you get that throughout the book. Yeah, I, ha- I have thoughts on that, but we can save it for later uh, in the podcast. I thought you would. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have some thoughts on that. So, um, uh, but anything else specifically about uh, you know Lucas, uh, how he was written, or you know what kind of uh, as a player, anything that uh, stands out to uh, any of you guys? Uh, I don't know. Oh well, now you'll have to forgive me. Like I hadn't. The last time I fully read the book front to back was like five years ago. Uh, so I went back and reread, you know, as much of it as I could the last couple of weeks. But um, uh, I, I feel like it, Lucas was um, in the 1977 finals. I think his role wasn't quite. I don't, I don't think it was explained in a in a completely like thoughtful manner, and not just by Halberstam, but by general popular consensus or whatever. Because uh, this was a guy, like you mentioned at the very beginning, that he was, you know, he came out of the ABA, and uh, you know, the Blazers were talked about as like the 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 pure basketball squad, the team that played team ball against like the the playground Sixers, and it's like, wait a minute, the Blazers had this enforcer, Maurice Lucas, who came out of the ABA, and the reason why that series turned around is because Maurice Lucas like started fighting Daryl Dawkins and intimidated all the Sixers. <laughs> So like this doesn't quite jive with the the narrative of them as like the perfect team basketball when Maurice Lucas like intimidated the other team into submission. Um, so I feel like that 
that idea wasn't quite expounded upon fully in this book as well as it could have been. Uh, kind of that the paradox and the narrative and the actuality what took place. Um, but I guess that's that's a good way to talk about Maurice Lucas though, because um, he was very much a you know a team player, but also marked off his turf and like you know. Uh, if he wasn't getting paid his money, he wasn't going to sacrifice for the team. He wanted to get his money. Like uh, the money, his interest came first, and then he would take care of the team. But if he wasn't getting taken care of himself, he wasn't going to uh, stick his neck out for the team in the long run. And good for him because they were going to do it for him. Like I thought, nope. the the, the, <laughs> the end of the book was great because he goes to Jersey, he starts playing again. He's like, oh, I'm healthy, and Calvin Nat's a bust. And I felt like the Blazers deserved it. They completely screwed him. Um, he was worth so much more money than they were giving him, and everyone knew it. So, I don't know. I kind of like the way that resolved, to be honest. <laughs> One of the other key characters is, um, of course, Dr. Jack Ramsey, the uh, considered at the time either the best coach in the game or right in that um, right in that category. Um, had the, the the loud '70s clothes with the big collars and the the gaudy suits. Um, you know, was um, I, I definitely think there's very much like the Tom Thibodeau like attitude toward each game of like, you know, absolutely having to do everything you can to win each game. And um, even maybe sometimes at the expense of the larger picture, you know, just he has the the red face, the veins popping, um, takes <laughs> losses so hard that he has to work out after midnight or walking alone through the empty streets in strange cities. Uh, also was a big physical fitness guy. And, you know, the other thing is that he had a system that he deeply uh, believed in and liked to contrast it with, um, you know, s- systems like guys who didn't fit guys who were, you know, considered like more one-on-one players or guys who like to freelance and weren't necessarily fits. Like he, he, he turned his nose on those guys. He was, you know, like even someone like artist Gilmore apparently was someone they were thinking about trading for. And, you know, Gilmore's one of the top two or three big men in the league at the time. And, um, and he's like, no, he, he doesn't pass. So we're, we're not going to do that. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I do think that that, and that kind of came to bit, bite him and the Blazers a little bit, you know, with kind of um, maybe lacking flexibility and maybe that limited their options on, you know, who they were able to, even if, you know, if, if the Lucas situation was untenable, you know, you, they, there were, it limited your options of who you could bring in because, you know, you really needed, you really needed Bill Walton for the system to work the way that, you know, it, it did. I mean, other guys could fit in, but it just, you know, it's, um, I think that was obviously one kind of negative. Um, so, um, uh, so Curtis, how did you, uh, how did Jack Ramsey come across for you? Uh, Ramsey, I, I think he did a pretty good job explaining him. Uh, he was, he was a hard ass, uh, in, in, in mostly a loving way. Uh, but he, he was a hard ass. Uh, you, and you look at his, uh, his coaching record with the Blazers, which I handily have pulled up in front of me, so I don't get nothing Ooh. wrong. Um, the team, the worst they ever did was 38 and 44. And that was the year that uh, Halberstam wrote about the 79, 80 season. So uh, this was a guy that like drove his teams and pushed him hard, like to the max to get to like a 42 and 40 record or a 44 and 38 record when they might've been better off just saying like, well, you know, we got a little, you know, some, some injuries this year. Guys aren't going to be coming back. Uh, let's just, you know, not tank. Uh, Cause they didn't use that word back then, but uh, how about we just let guys rest up and uh, we'll just get ourselves a nice draft pick and kind of try to reload. Um, Jack Ramsey's attitude would not allow for such things. Uh, he 
he pushed the team to the maximum of their talent. That's how they got to the finals and won the championship. But uh, part of me thinks like his his drive to, to push the team that hard, like a Thibodeau would, um, you know, in the long run, like that was not beneficial for the team because uh, we forget Walton. Well, not like all of us here, but like you know, generally speaking, uh, people kind of forget that Walton, like his his major injury, took place in the playoffs in '78. Uh, uh, yeah, 78, when they were yeah. playing the Sonics, like, he came back uh, from his previous foot injury that same year, and, like, you know, he rushed back to get there to play in the playoffs, and what happens, he breaks his foot again, and that's what shut him down for, like, two years after that. So uh, you, you got to think with a, a coach that was a little less um, tunnel-visioned, I guess is a good term, uh, a little less tunnel-visioned than Jack Ramsey. He might have said, like, what's the point of having him come back for the playoffs? Let's just let him rest and come back next year. Hopefully he'll be healthy. Now we can make like a, a better three, four year run instead of trying to make this this one run this season. Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that stands out about those the the, the seventy seven Blazers is, I mean, Lucas was twenty four, Walton was twenty four, Bob Gross is twenty three, Lionel Hollins was twenty three, Twardzik was twenty six, um, Johnny Davis was twenty one. Yeah. I mean, you know, basically almost yeah, everyone in their core. They, these were all guys. You know, these were all young guys. I mean, they really could have um kept it together and you know and, and been you know a, a great team for you know five seven ten years maybe no i, th- I think it's the the youngest um championship team in nba history still uh yeah they're really really young team uh so yeah I, I don't know why they felt the need to just keep rushing guys back right and i think uh, you know jason you mentioned the you know the contrast to tom thibodeau and you know i obviously me living in chicago and, and james can attest to this as well doing you know running the uh the nba injury report on twitter or whatever is that yeah i thought that and, and when you mentioned that i i, I wasn't quite sure because reading throughout this and i was saying jack Ramsey reminds me of somebody but who but who i, I couldn't remember and it was, <laughs> it was it was it was so close to me the entire time because then when i went to the notes and you said tom thibodeau and i went yeah of course like duh that's exactly who of, of a guy that just Every game is like the last game. Like every game is is the game seven of the NBA Finals. We have to win this game. We have to do this. We, you know, and and you get this sort of vibe from him, and and you got that from Tom Thibodeau, and you get you get it from a lot of coaches, you know, in the NBA as well. So I don't want to just just say Tom Thibodeau, but the contrast of those two, I thought was was or the contrasting pairing of those two, I thought was really really important. And I think it absolutely is something that you see with these guys where. Yeah, you, you you look at potential teams that could have you know had longer runs or whatever, and then you look at a guy who who's so focused on winning that next game and winning this game or this season and everything that he can't look at the big picture, can't look at that sort of stuff. And yeah, I, I think there are definitely you know comparisons of that. I mean, I think Jack Ramsey is a far better coach than Tom Thibodeau is, and well, that remains to be seen for a little bit. But I think right now we can you know easily say that. But in terms of that, I think it's absolutely you know a great comparison of a guy who just was obsessed with winning and just. In a lot of ways, even though he, he's a very smart man, very intelligent, was so hyper focused on winning that next game that a lot of times you do sort of lose a lot of the big picture stuff. And and you also get the idea as well. And 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 for people that, you know in Chicago, we hear a lot about this of of Tom Thibodeau's just un- like he wants everybody to follow his work ethic. Like he's a guy that's just going to sleep at the gym. You know, he's going to be there in the morning. And, and like guys would have to go to other arenas to to practice because they didn't want to be around him. Like they just wanted like one day without him there. And you see that with Ramsey as well, where he just. He, he can't understand why, you know, his players aren't as committed as he is. And it's like he just can't wrap his head around that. And he blames it on, oh, these modern players or whatever. It really would be any sort of <laughs> like, you know, level and, and era of players would at some point just be like, all right, like, just just chill. Like, just calm down. It's all right. Like, but Ramsey doesn't see it that way. You know, he's got to every 
thing, every game is the most important game ever. And, and you know, it, it led them to winning, as you mentioned, it led them to a championship, but it also probably led to that franchise and that, and that dynasty or the mini dynasty not having, you know, as much success as they probably could have had. He made me think of two other people from um, the game today who have long histories in the NBA um, that we haven't mentioned yet. And to me, he was almost a combination of, it was a little Scott Skilesy. Like, maybe he's great at, like, whipping these guys into shape, but after a couple of years, like, might lose him a little bit. And then also, mm-hmm. it was shades of Phil Jackson with just the adherence to a system, perhaps sometimes to the detriment of, you know, talents that might not thrive in that particular system, but could be of use if you were, you know, just a little bit more flexible. Um, but in general, I just thought he was... A man of contradictions. Like you've got, I thought it was interesting that you know he's this, this really old school presence, but he has these like wild modern clothes. Like I don't know that like speaks to something in his like psychology that I find sort of strange. Because usually when someone is that like work ethicy, I mean that, it's like a very broad stroke thing to say, but you don't think of them as being like flamboyant um, in their dress like usually. Yeah. Um, and then you've got like the he you know he kind of has this preternatural preternatural ability to kind of see what's happening before it happens yet you've got this image of this like the sweatiest coach in all of basketball who like literally (laughs) sweats through whatever like how could you sweat through dress shoes i'm assuming he was wearing right like i've never heard of that before like sneakers is one thing but like visible sweat through your dress shoes like that's a tremendous amount of sweat so um i just thought um uh yeah it was i'm not exactly sure what to make of him um, cause he did have a lot of contradictions, but I guess that's also like pretty normal and human, but I thought yeah. that was good. A good part on Halberstam to kind of show that he's not just like this robot, um, you know, perfectionist. Yeah. I, I, I thought that was good too. And, um, I thought that sort of the, the rivalry and contrast with Lenny Wilkins was interesting cause, cause Wilkins had preceded him in Portland and then Ramsey came in during the championship year and people obviously gave Ramsey a lot of credit for, um, doing that. But Wilkins is, you know, privately kind of saying, well, you know, yeah, but I never had a healthy Bill Walton either, you know? Um, so there are obviously a lot of factors that led to that, but then Wilkins went to, um, Seattle and then won a championship in 79 and he's so, sort of more known as a player's coach, a little bit more easygoing, but he's also um, in the same year. In fact, he's coping with some of the same problems of success that Ramsey's had to deal with in uh, Portland, particularly um, feuding with uh, Dennis Johnson. Um, and, uh, and, and and Wilkins is kind of, Ramsey is sort of put off. Uh, I don't. I forget if they specifically mentioned it with Wilkins, but he's sort of put off with the former players being named coaches. Like he feels like you know I'm a coach and this is a serious profession, and it goes through his you know extensive college um, uh, career at um, at St. Joe's and and and, and you know, having a long time you know long standing coaching and taking it very seriously. Not that Lane Wilkins didn't take coaching seriously, but it's just like the idea that like a player could just kind of walk in and do it is sort of offends his sensibilities. And so they have kind of a, you know, they don't ever like, you know, talk shit about each other, but they definitely have like a, um, I like sort of drawing the parallels between the uh, two coaches, even though they're in a very similar situation during the season. Oh yeah. I was about to say, it's, it just really sucks. Um, what happened with Lenny Wilkins up in Seattle? Uh, like the, the the feud with Dennis Johnson. That's one of the things that pisses me off the most. Um, thinking back on the NBA in that period, because uh, that just 
we were talking about the Blazers being like potential dynasty. The Sonics were also a potential, um, not I quite say dynasty, but they're, you know, they're going to be contenders for like five years in a row. Uh, but like Dennis Johnson, just, I don't know what the hell happened to him, but he just started to hate everybody on the team and everybody started to hate him. Um, and then Gus Williams, the very next year, held out for a new contract. So uh, what was happening with the Blazers was not unique. Uh, there was definitely like players, um, I guess, feeling more assertive about their contract status, uh, wanting to get their money uh, that they felt they deserved, and that management wasn't paying up. So um, I feel like a almost equally interesting book could have been written about the Sonics from the same season. So... Um... So I, Rich and I talked earlier, and I think you know we, we both agreed that our favorite portion of the book is telling the story of uh, Kermit Washington, who um, is best known as the man who gave what it was just known as the punch to Rui Tomjanovich. The it's a famous video clip. I'm sure everyone listening to this is familiar and has seen it. But he turns around and uh, and without really seeing, he turns around and he punches. Uh, Rui T right in the face and um and, and didn't mean to do so in such ferocity and it was, it was obviously a chaotic situation but um you know he was demonized by the leagues and fans and you know even though he is a guy who um and the book goes through it in great detail and, and it's a compelling story of him um um just you know, coming up and having so little self confidence, but working so hard to you know become a great basketball player first in high school, then in college, and then finally in the NBA when you know he languished for a few years in the Lakers and um, you know was uh, you know maybe kind of getting to the point where he might you know be out of the league, but he you know went to Pete Newell who was a consultant for the Lakers and he got some individual coaching from him and. Um, and, and was able to turn himself into a really good player and, ha- and have a really good career. To, and then, you know, r- running into the situation, the punch, and then afterward, you know, kind of uh, bouncing around the league a little bit and just looking for a home and in in at least if finding, you know, a, a pretty good situation in Portland, although, you know, there were obviously mixed results with how the team was going. But I, I just thought the way that um, – uh, just the way he comes out and the way that uh, I, I think this is the most um, compelling story, you know, in in the entire book. And I think just the the the, the richest, the, the most lasting uh, mm-hmm. story as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, and he's just, yeah, I think in terms of a full story, a lot of the other guys are, you know, they'll, they'll have some interesting stuff or whatever. But you get for this Kermit, you get the entire, you, you know. Really, his upbringing and and almost nothing kind of goes this guy's way the entire time. So you can't help but be like, man, like like just and just feel for him. And then when you realize, and and I actually did not, you know, I'd forgotten the, the story of him that he was just, you know, an absolute nut. I mean, he goes to his senior year of high school, he's still just kind of a nothing. He goes to you know his tryout, he doesn't do particularly well in the tryout, but but the coach is just really. Loves his hustle. The coach, you know, eventually went on to American. I, I, the name's blanking me right now, uh, the American University coach. But he, he enjoys his hustle. And, and more than anything, he enjoys that, like, the people that were running the thing were really mean to him. And he didn't care. He just kind of took it and, and sort of stepped, you know, kept doing what he wanted to do. And, and in light of, you know, the, those people kind of, you know, eye rolling him and, and not really giving him the time of the day or whatever. And that's it's amazing how, you, you know, how something as small as that is just like, you know, hey, I enjoy how this guy, you know, reacts to adversity can turn into a, a guy who, you know, by luck grows a bunch of inches, you know, his, his freshman year of college, trains like a maniac, starts doing weight training, starts doing steps, so, you know, just shoots all over the place and, and becomes 
becomes, you know, a legitimately a pretty good all-around player, which is just amazing considering where he was, you know, in high school. And it, it seems like he's not really even that much of a, a purely natural athlete. He's a very, you know, hard worker and had to sort of get to where he got to. You know, it was all effort. So it's really cool. And then I just think his story is just so – because finally once he's got it, it's like, okay, cool. You know, he's finally got his his stuff all ready to go. You know, his, his upbringing was awful. You know, I, I'm not going to go into the details of that. But, of course, if you read the book, you're aware of that. But, you know, he's in and out of foster homes doing all that sort of stuff. So he finally gets it all together and then the punch happens. And it's like, oh, man. And, like, he of all the figures in the book I just had the most sympathy for and just felt the most for. Like, I felt like there was so much humanizing of Kermit Washington where some of the other guys were still kind of these larger-than-life NBA players fighting over money and, you know, that sort of stuff. Whereas Kermit never felt like that. And he was, he was without a doubt, my favorite character in the entire book. You know, I'll, I'll second that. Um, and it's not even the punch. I mean, the punch is clearly the, the worst thing to happen. But um, the year before, like, he tore his... Um, the tendon in his knee, uh, the patella mm-hmm. tendon. And, like, you know, the Lakers were, I think they had, like, the first or second best record in the Western Conference, uh, but he gets hurt um, at some point prior to the playoffs, so he's he's out for the postseason, and the Lakers, of course, aren't going to win without him. Um, so, like, that was the first, like, ah, crap. The guy, like, worked himself up. He's, you know, a 12.10 rebound uh, a game power forward. He blows his knee out, comebacks next year, and then what happens? He punches Rudy Tomjanovich. Um, and I uh, just going back and reading this about this, because I've read obviously breaks of the game, but also uh, the punch, uh, the book entirely about Rudy T and uh, Kermit Washington. And it just seemed like everybody knew Kermit was getting screwed at the time, but like nobody was like going to pump the brakes on it. There's like, well, he, he just got to get screwed. Uh, like they knew it was unfair how he's going to get punished by the league. They're just like, well, you know, it's like, you know, the, the, the public wants his head on a pike. So we're going to stick his head on the pike. It's like the, the NBA just couldn't stop what was going to happen. Um, it's like they, they knew it was unjust. Like the commissioner was interviewed for the book, uh, The Punch, or at least they found old interviews with him. Um, and it's not like the commissioner was like, you know, Kermit didn't seem like he meant to do it, but we got to make an example out of him uh, for everybody else. And it's like this is the worst guy to make an example out of. Um, like he's one of the nicest people in the world. Uh, they busted his butt to get into the NBA. And uh, there were worse players with, you know, much greater mean streaks than him. But, you know, they, they got off a lot a lot lighter than he did for something uh, that, you know, was, you know, it, it was an accident. You know, like, obviously, you know, you throw a punch at somebody's face. You don't want to call it an accident. But, you know, the kind of force he put into it was an accident. And uh, he just got punished so severely for it. Uh, yeah, he comes out very sympathetic because, you know, we see he's getting screwed. People knew at the time he was getting screwed. Mm-hmm. No one stopped, stopped him from getting screwed, basically. So you're saying he's more sympathetic than a Steven Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the crowd is looking for a fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, I mean, the punch is, you know, it's really like an incredible story because that, I didn't really know much more about him beyond that. That's pretty much the only thing I knew about him. And I was just, right. I was saying, and, and I was just, I was like, I, I knew he was okay. I didn't realize that he was like pretty damn good. And I was wondering if like, would it in 2015, would it still, you know, with like the two second news cycle, would it's would he still be known for that for the rest of his life like is is a or like would would that change anything or is uh, when some when the results are that um extreme is there no kind of getting around the notoriety from literally like breaking someone's face you know off um would that have been that's a good question yeah i kind of think it would be worse in, in a sense um i'm not sure the nba would react to it in the same way i mean he would definitely be punished but maybe it wouldn't necessarily be to the extreme um that he was punished um but that, that's 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 a tough question 
Yeah, I, part of me thinks that it would be more intense, more quick, and then would kind of like move on to the next thing. Um, and in some ways, it almost would lessen it. Like, there'd probably be some stupid meme pictures with, like, crying Jordan face on Tom Janovich, <laughs> you know, and I just wonder. And But the other thing that was created, I thought that tryout story was, like, relentlessly insane. Like, that couldn't happen today. He just showed up at, like, an All-Star game. Yeah, like, let me go. And they're like, yeah, all right, uh, you know what, yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... Yeah. yeah, and that's it, like that's that's such a story that that is such a '70s you, you know sort of thing or early NBA t- sort of thing or early basketball sort of thing. I should just say early athletics because now I mean these kids, no kid is just rolling up to a tryout and, and saying, "Hey, you know, can I play or can I have a chance or whatever?" Because a these kids have been you know in the same AU team since they were ten. Or I mean, there's just none of that organic sort of you know needle in the haystack, you know, diamond in the rough sort of guy like Kermit Washington was. I mean, th- there's so few of that because these guys are just so. I mean, if you show any sort of skill when you're nine or whatever, yeah. you're, you're and like they're not going to let some seventeen-year-old who's oh no I try really really hard oh okay yeah let's let's you know let's let you in or whatever I mean it's just not going to happen so it, I thought that was really cool about that too because it's just an insane story that that you almost don't believe at first because it's so foreign to like our generation that a kid oh, can, yeah can and do something like and that's that, the so. kind of thing that baby boomers will hit you with they'll be like uh, just you know pull yourself up show up to the All Star game right like no that's not going to happen no, yeah not, that's, that's, not today. that's what my mom said <laughs> it never really worked out so mom <laughs> yeah. Well, but- yeah, well, one final thing on Kermit, or I guess just one more thing on Kermit. I don't know if it's the final, uh, but like I, I went to American University, so like you know we would play pickup ball in the gym, and his his number is hanging up there in the rafters. So uh, that was really cool on my behalf to see that happen. Uh, but I also got to meet him, albeit briefly, because I don't like to hassle famous people. Uh, but like I was undergrad, I was doing my student radio show, and I walk out the radio station. There's Kermit Washington walking down the hallway. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's Kermit Washington. And he asked me where like, the, the station was. So like, oh, the station's down the hallway to the left. He's like, oh, thanks. And like, he's the most soft-spoken, nice guy and like huge smile on his face. Uh, he was on campus because he was like raising money for uh, starving people in Africa because he had some charity for like over a decade that did stuff like that. Uh, so like, it's really a guy who was, you know, worked really hard, really cared about other people, um, still does. And so it's just like, yeah. If only the Stephen Jacksons of the world got punished like that instead of the Kermit Washingtons. Um, oh. it's, it's bad. It's unfortunate karma that goes around. It's, it's like reverse karma. Kermit was the last person in the world that should have happened to, but it did. He's just the poster boy for this deep, unrelenting sadness of this book. The more I think about it, it's just... <laughs> what a sad, terrible book. Yeah, that's, that's why I've book. been depressed all weekend. I was wondering what was going on. Um... So I, I think the last of like the the major characters, and he doesn't really show up until uh, until toward the end, is uh, is Billy Ray Bates, who uh, came from the uh, the CBA, the minor league of the time, and um, had kind of like you know I I think I read it initially. I think I read this book the first time around the so- the time of insanity. So I think that just the comparison in my mind, you know, was. Just you, just yeah. I had to make that comparison because that's kind of what was going on, and it was ne- never like on that scale. But he definitely, you know, was someone who, um, you know, certainly Portland was paying attention to. He got some national, you know, TV attention on uh, CBS, and he just kind of, you know, was um, for the most part just a, you know, a, a volume score, uh, you know, a Vinnie Johnson type 
type or Jamal Crawford or or that level of player who just, you know, was was there to to get buckets. And he's another guy who just came from, you know, one of the you know most difficult upbringings you could imagine. I mean, working, you know, with a you know, family of sharecroppers on a Mississippi farm and um, and and then, um, you know, going through the the CBA, which was just kind of a crazy league where, you know, it, it, insanity reigned, um, you know, just to kind of be a journeyman there and then finally, you know, make it into the league and only be, you know, because the um, assistant coach for the Blazers had, you know, seen him a couple years before and had been impressed by him. And then, you know, they they gave him a shot and then suddenly, you know, um, it, you know, didn't last very long. He only was on the Blazers for a couple of years and bounced around the NBA and, um, you know, managed to find a fantastic career in the Philippines. But, um, but you didn't really last. It wasn't a bright light for very long in the NBA, but was just kind of able to, um, you know, j- just sort of, uh, out of nowhere, bring a little bit of life to this Blazers team and kind of give that that season at least a little bit of a happy ending of, you know, kind of having a competitive series with a much better Seattle team. Yeah. And we, we did a um, we did a podcast our, uh, before the playoffs or actually while, while the playoffs were going on the, these past playoffs. And we talked a lot about Billy Ray Bates. It was like our unexpected great playoffs or whatever. We, we talked about his, you know, back to back years where this guy just kind of does nothing, you know, throughout the regular season, like like literally in a lot of ways, like absolutely nothing. And then come playoff time was just. Un- unbelievable like we just put together these incredible games so yeah he does have a very linsanity sort of feel to him um he- he's an odd character in this book I-, I don't quite know how to tackle him exactly i think they do a good job of sort of building him up and, and what he is but i i don't know i felt like there wasn't a whole lot fleshed out with him and i never really fully got the whole billy ray bates thing if, if there was really much there and that, that could be sort of the the issue and, and another thing too is because we don't have his full story when this you know as you said he yeah. comes out at the end you know we still he still had a you know an incredible life where he was you know a philippine basketball god or you know he was putting like 70 points a game certain seasons or whatever so i think knowing that i know that and then you know you know not being in this book i think sort of takes a little bit away from the billy ray bates whereas most guys you sort of get their entire life and their career in this book, whereas you don't necessarily get that for, for Billy. So maybe that's why it felt sort of incomplete for me. But I, I don't know. He was he was hard to kind of, you know, get a handle on throughout this book. Yeah, I had a similar thought. I was kind of trying to figure out, like, what his point was, other than, like, being sort of a kind of, a you know, entertaining side story. I hate to, like, boil down, like, a human's life to that. But, you know, just within, like, the, you know, the confines of the book. But I don't know. Maybe it's just, like, um, introducing sort of, like, an archetype of, like, this kind of person who kind of like floats in out of the league and how there's like never any shortage of them. Um, that seemed like kind of like a, a theme that didn't go explicitly stated in the book. It just this kind of like nothing ever truly kind of new happens. It's all sort of like repetitions of the same kind of issues that they deal with and like they become bigger or smaller or they live in different people. But um, I don't know. I I, I kind of struggled also too with like what, what the point of his inclusion was, but maybe it was just this just kind of like idea of like uh, of talent and, and like supreme talent not being enough. I mean, you talk about the title, like the breaks of the game, like so much is like just luck. You know, there's talent and then there's dedication and there's so many factors. Like, you know, it's really like a miracle that any team ever can like put it all together to win a championship. And maybe this is just kind of like one small part of that i don't know yeah my my takeaway from billy ray bates in this book is like it's is utterly ridiculous that somebody could just show up off the street well not off the street literally but you know this dude comes out of cba and just drops 25 points a game in the playoffs um 
I remember when I first read it, I was like, who in the hell is Billy Ray Basin? How is he scoring 25 points a game? And then I was, yeah, and I was like, yeah, that's pretty much it for the book. As far as I'm concerned with Billy Ray Bates, it's like, yeah, cool playoff score. And then he just vanished. But of course, as Rich if- said, like, yeah. He didn't actually vanish. Like, he had a pretty incredible story just that the book ended, like, 1980, 1981. So uh, it wasn't there to pick up until 1989. Mm-hmm. He's playing in the Philippines. So, yeah, that's not the book's fault, but that's just uh, an, an issue with kind of seeing Billy Ray Bates' full story. I wonder if he was a, uh inspiration for Billy Ray Valentine of Trading Places. Uh, follow, follow me for a second. I don't know if you guys have seen this film, but a guy who's not part of the game shows up out of nowhere, comes in, beats them at their own game for a little bit, and then does his own thing. We don't need to spend too much time on that thought, but it just popped into my head. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, well, let's, we'll sure. have to tackle that. Yeah. That's a whole podcast. That's a whole podcast we're going to have to talk yeah. about. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Think about it. <laughs> I am, but now I can't think about anything else. <laughs> You're right. Huh. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm to, we'll unpack that one another day. Yeah. That, that's anytime that's you can bring a Betty Murphy on a podcast, it's a good day. So, yeah, exactly. Um, well, '80s Eddie Murphy, anyway. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. We're not talking about. The <laughs> um. So yeah. there's there's uh, quite a few other personalities in the book. We obviously can't get all to all of them, but you, you maybe um, if everyone wants to, you know, pick one more guy in the book who maybe stood out to you as someone who you know was interesting or worth talking about or um or or, or what have you. Uh, Rich, I'll let you go first if you'd like. Yeah, one, one guy, we talked a little bit about this earlier, was LaRue Martin is one that they talk about a little bit in the book. It's towards the beginning, and, you know, he's the number one overall pick, you know, super raw talent from, you know, Loyola here, here in Chicago. And and the big thing with him is that, you know, he dominated in a game against Bill Walton. So everybody was sort of like, oh, what is this guy capable of? And, you know, what can he do? And, you know, he, he gets there and, and just he's just not ready for the NBA at all. Like, you know, physically, mentally, you know, no aspect of that is ready. You, you feel throughout the book that he's just a very nice guy that just simply, you know, it's not his fault that he's not, you, you know. And, and that's why I always hate when, like in in sports discussions, they get, everybody always like rails on guys as busts or whatever, and it's like you know a lot of these guys don't pick. You know he didn't want to be you know the number one overall pick. I'm sure he didn't mind being it, but you sort of see this guy that's just like from the beginning understands like oh no like don't do that to me like I'm not I'm not ready to be this. And and one of the interesting things that I thought was was, was funny is you know looking at it from the aspect of today's game, and and you still get that from time to time. It's like a guy like Anthony Bennett is a perfect example of a guy who you know dominates in some stuff. They see him in some games. They see him in you know tournament. Games. And they go, oh my god, this guy is so good, and we're gonna make the number one overall pick, and he's just not ready for it, and mentally, physically, in, in no aspect or whatever. But then you also see a lot of, you know, more. He, I think he's almost a rare case where the team gave up on him super, super quick. I don't know if you necessarily see that quite as much anymore as you kind of did then where there wasn't the ability to do odd-in-the-job training. I think uh, in one part, a quote of the book is, you know, Martin worked hard to develop, but the NBA was not a good place for on-the-job training. It was an impatient, harsh world where stakes were high and the difference between winning and losing was all important and also surprisingly thin. So I thought that was – is that much – and I guess I'll pose this question to you guys and maybe that could be the jump-off point – has that altered or changed since you know guys like Kevin Garnett or since you know the pro the prep to pro guys are now the the one and done sort of guys? Is there more capacity for on the job training in the NBA than there was now, or is it just sort of depending on where you go and where you land, and and that and it could matter based off that versus you know an all encompassing you know idea of how players are developed in today's NBA? I I think it's um hmm. I, th- I think today you're allowed to have more time to grow into a bigger role on the team. Uh, if that makes any sense, like you'll no, absolutely, yeah, you'll get you'll get a few more seasons to get into a larger role because you're coming in at 18 or 19 years old, whereas 
you know, back in like 77 or even like 85, uh, the youngest player coming into a league would be like 21 years old because guys might skip their senior year if they usually wouldn't come out, you know, freshman or sophomore year. Uh, so there was just less time in your career arc for them to like wait around for you to to develop into something. So I, you know, now you can wait for Kobe Bryant, who was you know 18 when he joined the NBA. You can wait for him to take like five years to really grow into the the player he's gonna he was gonna be. Uh, whereas you know back in '77, let's say Kobe does the same, tries to do the same kind of trick. Uh, I don't think most teams would have given him the time, you know, five years to really kind of to grow into the kind of player mm-hmm. he was going to be. Uh, they probably would have said, like, all right, it's been a couple years. Uh, we're going to slot you in as, like, you know, backup shooting guard. You, you would just enjoy that, and that'd be that. Yeah, I, I think that um, – I mean, I, I do think the NBA is still not a good place for on-the-job training. Like, I mean, they talk about, like, that where, like, you know, really, like, developing – skill development is really something that kind of happens more during the summer, you know, working on something specific on your game. Um I, I do think that obviously you're more used to there being, you know, 19, 20 year olds in the game where that was a very rare thing. So teams are, were just so used to that happening that I do think there is some more room, certainly for not expecting a player to be good right away or even great right away. But there's also, I mean, there's obviously been cases like, um, you know, Darko Miltic, who, um, it, you know, ends up with like in the worst possible situation with the worst possible coach, Larry Brown, for developing a young player. Um, you just had no interest in that and just was on a team that had no interest in that. And, there, you know, it's unlikely he would have ended up really being, you know, good, you know, good anyway, because he just didn't, for whatever reason, just he didn't really have the um, interest in doing so, it seemed like. But, and that was obviously 11 years ago, too. So the NBA has changed a lot since then. But, um, I do think it depends on the team a lot. I, I do think that there is more patience for it, but I do think that the it's like um, it's still a incredibly difficult thing to go from like really raw to being like you know really good. Um, it, it's it's possible, but it's still incredibly difficult. Yeah, which makes Kermit. Uh, you go back to Kermit, everybody's favorite character from the book. Uh, that makes this story all the more amazing because, like, he spent the first two or three years struggling to get playing time. Then all of a sudden, he mm-hmm. becomes, you know, the one of the key cogs, maybe the second, the second key player in the Lakers behind Kareem. Uh, so, you know, it makes what he did back in the seventies even more astounding uh, that he was able to go from, you know, that that raw, just pure like hustle talent to, you know, kind of a refined power forward. I did think that was kind of amazing that he had to reach out for help when it was clear he wasn't like i know it's like the yeah. pros and you're paying them and they've you know they've got to be good but when you think it would be in their best interest to like have a coach sit them down and be like look do you want like at least ask if they want like some help with you know uh their skills i don't know i find that fascinating well i think that might speak to how they thought of players back then it's like well this one didn't work out bad just throw them in the scrap people let's go find another one um yeah, yeah for like off to the glue yeah, factory yeah, yeah. well and, and the yeah. And the investment in play, I mean, the financial investment, if nothing else, in players was not as, you know, it was starting to get increase, obviously, but it still was not vast to the point where you didn't necessarily, you could just discard a player and you're not paying them that much. So you can just get the next guy in, where if you're, you know, paying them a significant salary, there's there's more incentive to actually try to make them. That's a good player. point. Yeah. And maybe it's because it doesn't seem like first round picks were value then they were throwing them in in like every trade possible so <laughs> oh yeah, yeah so they were just like ah, oh, whatever we'll get another one next year like they didn't see the need to develop that clearly 
Yeah, we, we sort of take that for granted, too, in, in modern team building now, you know, the way we think of it and, and how coveted, you know, first round draft picks are and, you know, top 15 players or whatever. And you understand, obviously, that a lot of that is, you know, progression and scouting and progression, and, you know, who you're getting. Whereas, you know, a lot of times then it, it was, I mean, you, you see just a way higher percentage of just terrible picks because it's just like, you know, teams just, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, it was just sort of, not that it wasn't a big deal, but it just sort of, unless there was that sort of guy that everybody knew was good, you see a lot of teams just sort of throwing away a pick and, hey, let's see how this guy does. Okay, in a year, he's no good. Okay, whatever. Like, forget it. It's over. Whereas now it's like unheard of. A guy that everybody knew was good, you see a lot of teams just sort of throwing away a pick and, hey, let's see how this guy does. Okay, in a year, he's no good. Okay, whatever. Like, forget it. It's over. Whereas now it's like unheard of. I mean, that's why I mentioned, you know, a guy like Anthony Bennett is is almost sort of, a rare case these days where almost immediately they realized, Oh God, this guy's terrible. Okay. Sorry. Like, and just, you know, they didn't worry about his development almost pretty much didn't do anything to make him better. I mean, just pretty much realized that it was a horrible investment right off the bat. You, you don't get that usually now these guys, it, it seems more teams, even if the guy ends up being, you know, a quote bust or whatever, they'll give them so many more opportunities because it's such a valuable asset and they, they sort of see it as, you know, not as a sunk cost, but as something, okay, we need to redeem this value that we, you know, gave up getting this absolute terrible player or whatever. Whereas, you know, then it, it was, just kind of yeah whatever you know it's, they, they I don't know if they I, I don't know that they you know really thought of it as 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 valuable as we do you know these days for, for a myriad of reasons as well mm-hmm. yeah and I guess you had so much more information back then like I mean it's like I mean now <laughs> than back then um you know so like they see a couple games he plays well then he comes into the league you know not everything's on tape comes into the league he stinks so like oh well maybe he just did stink you know how much do we really know about this guy Whereas now, you know, like you said, you've got all their stats and video going back to like eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So you, you have reason to like believe way past probably than when you did then. Um, just based on that. I, um, for me, I liked, he wasn't really much in the book because he was basically injured the whole season. But there's a, there's a little bit early on um, Michael, Ty, excuse me, uh, Michael Thompson, who um, is, of course, Clay Thompson's dad. And, um, and he would end up being a, you know, pretty strong player for the Blazers in the eighties and eventually would go to the, uh, end of the line dynasty, uh, Lakers teams. But, um, uh, one that he legally changed the spelling of his first name to stand out to be M Y C H A L. And then the second is that during the, uh, before he was drafted, he spread a false rumor that he was David Thompson's cousin to uh, get attention, which I, I think is pretty enterprising. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the guy who slept? Who was the guy who slept in and then chartered his own private jet to get to the game? Oh, that was Marvin Barnes. Uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. That was that was one of my favorite uh, anecdotes. <laughs> we did a whole podcast on uh, old Marvin Barnes. Yeah, he's yeah, uh, yeah, an interesting. Like, yeah, that's... Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Marvin was such an interesting guy. <laughs> oh, the. Uh, you know, I think my favorite person from the book, um, probably because all the themes that you could just untangle with them, was Moses Malone. Because uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, the, the Blazers, you know, being one of the forerunners of, you know, signing young players to long deals to kind of lock them in on the cheap. Except Moses posed kind of a problem because he was a young player, but he had already been an all-star in the ABA. So they're like, well, crap, we're going to have to pay him a lot of money. Uh, so let's, instead of paying him a lot of money, let's just trade him away and try to get some little bits and pieces. And, um, yeah, they kind of regretted that one. Cause a, he like, he won like the five best centers ever, but also they lost Bill Walton. And they were like, well, shit, that's, that's the perfect, well, maybe not the perfect player, but like clearly like a le- legit great center that could have just stepped in and we have to change the way we play. But 
you, you can change your way and play with Moses and still be a very successful team. So um, I found his story really, really interesting. I've always loved Moses. Uh, so when I first read this book, that was my first chance really to see a lot more of Moses' backstory coming from rural Virginia and, uh, you know, the just uh, the assumption that he was an idiot just because he couldn't talk very well. Um, and, of course, all the connotations that go along with that um, and assumptions that go along with it. But yeah, like you know, he's mumbles Malone. Uh, yeah, all right, he want to be high, high paid too. Oh well, yeah, let's just get him out of here. And then like, oh, two years later, he's MVP <laughs> with the Rockets. <laughs> he seems like, to yeah, really. Shit, we messed up. He seems to really relish um, being see- like judged by that stereotype and just playing everyone for fools. Yeah. Like when they when he was getting rec- recruited by Bobby Knight, I thought that was a great. Was that him? Wait, no, that's um, in, I'm confusing that with uh, Isaiah Thomas. Uh, no, no, right? No, he was heavily recruited by Maryland, and I forget the other, the other school, but he right. was definitely heavily recruited by Maryland. Um, but yeah, he would like he still wasn't a good speaker, but uh, he was he's a really smart guy. So just because he can't talk well, doesn't mean he can't like you know outsmart you. So yeah, he would kind of play dumb eventually and just get the better of people. Yeah, he acted like he didn't know what he was doing, and then and then like oh, there's a lawyer like, <laughs> <laughs> and he brought that guy, and he's like, yep, and I'm gonna get a ton of money, and yeah, so. Uh, Lefty Dreisel is the uh, Maryland coach that you're talking about, but yes, right, yeah, yep. yes. Um, all right. Um, so uh, moving on to uh, to you know, David Halberstam himself, he was, uh, you know, an, an accomplished uh, political journalist. Had written, uh, you know, several. Uh, he wrote a lot of books in his career, but he's just coming off of two, you know. Of, of his big works. So he's kind of at an interesting point in his career. He did tackle um, uh, sports at times as well. He wrote um, some you know, pretty famous um, baseball books, including Summer of 49. Um, and, um, and he wrote a later book about Michael Jordan in the uh, late 90s, which um, – which I haven't actually read, but my understanding is it's not quite, it's, it's not at the level of uh, this book. Um, it, I, I think lacking the access, you know, that obviously the media environment in the late 90s is much different than the media environment in the uh, late 70s in terms of, um, you know, the lack of success of the NBA definitely meant more access for journalists um, in the NBA because they were desperate for the coverage. So, I mean, you know, the, the reporting and writing here, I think, are top notch and obviously, you know, had incredible access very good research as we talked about deeply covered a lot of aspects of the nba at the time and really good document of the times um you know a couple things for me that are difficult uh i i think there are there are three major things um one you know sometimes difficult for me to discern whether he's giving his own view of a situation or the view of a person that he's writing about or some kind of like objective view of like this is the the, the best truth, truth i can come up with based on everything that you know i've heard and i'm just going with that um also he has like a really really deep nostalgia for like the the 60s nba before expansion before bigger money came into play um uh, you know, he's quotes like originally the impulse behind basketball had been genuine on the part of everyone involved. The product had been good. Um, and, uh, you know, things like that where um, it, it just like uh, I, I feel like he seems blinded by by that, um, that nostalgia. When I don't think that's really a lot of the things he's talking about in that those years of the NBA, I, I feel like are not really so true. And then. 
the the third and the definitely the the hardest thing for me is I, I the the way that he writes about people who are black and who are not black are, I feel like are very different. Like he's more likely to um, link black players into groups, sort of embrace stereotypes, and like I, I was trying to figure out a way to to put this and I, I think like he's almost like a scientist who's like observing like alien creatures and he's trying to understand he's trying to write them like he's like like i feel like that's like the style that he's writing at and like he's certainly sympathetic to the the, the plight of blacks in america and you know the the difficulties that you know the, the, the of course the incredibly complicated difficult history of in this country but he also like i think the the way that he yearns for the good the old days in the nba and the way he's kind of talking about how society has moved to um uh, you know become more complicated become more commercialized it almost seems like he has a nostalgia for the old days and the way that he favors management in most situations and mm-hmm. um i i i think all those link to um just making aspects of the book difficult to handle. So I realize that that's a lot I just put out there, but <laughs> what are some, um, some, some observations that you guys have or anything that you want to kind of respond to what I just talked about as far as, you know, Havish and the way that you wrote the book. You want to go first? Yeah, James? I'm, 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 oh, oh, Curtis. Oh, wait, I was, I was waiting for Curtis. Right. Yeah, I thought Curtis was going to jump in. Same here. I wasn't going to say a word. I was not going to get in Curtis's way. <sighs> Yeah, uh, let's just go ahead and call bullshit on um, some of our things should be like, you know, better and easier back when the, the poor players had rights and all that. Um, yeah, like, right. The, and like the game was like the the game was more pure and it was it, it was a better product and all that. Like that's just it makes me so just like you probably hear it in my voice. I'm just like just so annoyed <laughs> with that kind of that kind of logic. Um, it's like players have always uh, wanted more freedom, like more ability to do what they want. Like who the hell wouldn't? Um, like the nostalgia he's talking about is like the control of owners over players. We're like, you know, we people are like, oh my god, isn't it so wonderful when a player spends his whole career with a team like they used to do, like with Russell spending all his career with the Celtics or Magic all his career with the Lakers? It's like, well, you know, it's probably because in Russell's era there was no free agency period. So only way you change teams is if you got traded or if you got cut by a team. So then you became a free agent after you got cut by somebody. But your contract was not guaranteed, hence why you got cut. Or in Magic's case, even in the 80s, like, yeah, there was free agency technically, but it still wasn't used all that often. So um, teams would get the compensation. So it was still like a trade. Like, that's what happened with Bill Walton uh, with the Blazers and Clippers. So uh, I think this... This loops around to Jason's kind of uneasiness with his observations uh, of black people. It's like he has this nostalgia for an era that he that he thought was pure, but we know like well there was segregation of black people and labor rights were being abused. So how can you pine nostalgically for that kind of stuff? Um, it just, it just really, I think that's where a lot of the, some of the issues with his writing comes in with the book. It's just his nostalgia for this period that really didn't exist. Like, I think that's why it's nostalgia. It's like this kind of utopia vision he had before, before like the Vietnam War ruined everything. And then players, you know, fighting and getting free agency began to ruin the NBA. So, uh, yeah, he's got some issues to work out there, I think. <laughs> And one thing that I thought was interesting throughout, and I, I, I guess I'm curious on your guys' thoughts as well, it always felt 
at least from my standpoint of not necessarily that I don't know if that was necessarily his opinion or what he thought, but more what he was being told by whether it was the coaches, whether it was management or whatever. I always kind of felt that that was more their voice coming through than his exactly. I, and I don't know why I think that it's just it just sort of seemed like there were times when he he would be fair and balanced and then he would get to the like sort of the labor relations and especially labor relations as it related to, you know, black players. And then it would be very much like, oh, the good old days and that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, I, I, I the whole time I just kind of was like, I, is that. You know, are, are are you just basically being, you know, kind of the 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 spokesperson for the the owners and management or whatever, or do you generally feel that way? And I, I don't know if I never, or I don't know if I ever really got an answer from that, even when the book was over. If that was more his opinion or him sort of relaying what they were telling him and sort of taking it as his opinion as well. It was it was kind of weird in that sense. Yeah, it was. I thought like largely he did a decent job of kind of like trying on people's perspectives, and I think sometimes he did kind of like talk in this first person way that wasn't meant to be his but then like he would have these like lapses the one that kept sticking out to me was like he seemed to lose his mind anytime he talked about no cut contracts like he <laughs> hate he's like well yeah. how could they possibly have an incentive like who could ever want to like a get another contract like you know your contract doesn't last forever so you want to be good you're you're discounting these guys pride like yes like some people might lose you know some motivation but like by and large, the, these guys get there because they're really good at it. They are re, really egotistical. They are really competitive. They, it kind of reeked of this kind of uh, – it reminds me of you know when people talk about like tipping. Well, we have to tip in restaurants because otherwise they'll spit in our food. It's like – or you could maybe like treat them like humans and they'll be happy to work there and you'll get your food on time and it'll be hot. Um, I, I don't know. He, he did seem in, in those moments – like he seemed to drop the facade of objectivity when he was talking about no mm-hmm. cut contracts like the most – and yeah, the the racial stuff was a little disconcerting at times. I just, it was I I, I don't want to like extend too much sympathy to him. Um, I, I do think it can be difficult to talk about like, you know, there can be like broad cultural differences, but he did tend to kind of like always lump in like, well, he was a black player, so like kind of this, and like this is what like black fans like, you know, um, in a way that was like a little queasy, um, but. I think he tried. I don't know. Nah. Yeah. I, I mean, he does. I mean, I think yeah. he, he does bring individual perspectives. Um, I mean, he, he talks about player rights to I me. Mean, he talks about how um, he, he does bring up some arguments about, um, you know, even talking about like the Celtics. It's talking about, well, the Celtics all loved Red Auerbach and they all love each other and they built this great culture, even though, you know, he never paid them well. And, um, you know, he, he does talk about um, I mean, I, I don't think it's like he's completely taking one side, but I do feel like the weight of the book tends to be like, OK, these guys are getting a lot of money and getting these no cut contracts. And that's a bad thing. And this game is growing, you know, too fast and too much. And I'm not comfortable with it. And that's a bad thing. I, I feel like. Uh, that is definitely given more weight than the other than the other stuff. Although I do think there is challenges to that are in the book, but I don't think they're given as much weight. Well, yeah, and I think one thing that's important as well is reading it in the context of 2015 eyes or whatever, and sort of knowing that he's talking about all oh, that you know this is what's become of the league, and this is what it's going to be kind, and sort of trying to be a prognosticator on what's you know all all this stuff's going to cause the league to you know kind of not necessarily he's not saying the league's going to go away, but that you know it's not going to be the same or no it's going to lose some of its luster or whatever, and you know you sort of look and you realize you know <laughs> ten years later the league's going to be you know immensely popular, just going to sweep the nation, you know, and, uh, ten years after that it's going to be you know a cultural and international phenomenon. 
phenomenon and you know it's going to continue to just be healthy beyond belief or whatever and sort of knowing that in, in the context of reading this 2015 you sort of I roll your eyes every single time he mentions you know oh I don't know about this league these days you know anytime he sort of gets a contrarian view of it you kind of roll your eyes because you're like no dude it's going to be a super successful league you know on the backs of the superstars or of the players that are making a ton of you know so and and another funny thing as well that, that that's interesting and, and people mention the uh, the HP summer read or whatever a lot of things that he does mention never quite go away you know he talks about uh you know the tv contracts is a big thing he talks about oh you know this the games become a business and it's all about the tv contracts or whatever you know this a lot of the stuff is still sort of there and the league is healthier than ever you know in terms of you know things that 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 at least a guy from that standpoint of you know an older white man in the the 1970s thinks is going to ruin the game and and you know it's it with 2015 eyes, it's sort of laughable because you know, okay, no, this, well, you know, it's not not at all going to happen, and it's going to be perfect. So from that standpoint, I, I could see how if you read it in the moment, you might be like, yeah, yeah, this guy's onto something. Whereas now you read it and you're like, okay, you're no, like that's not. Well, what's I don't know. Happen. I mean, I, I would argue the game is certainly healthier from a revenue perspective than ever, and certainly the players are much better, and there's a much deeper understanding of what it takes to be successful, and we have so much more information. But I think a couple of things he's right about. Like, I do think the 82 game schedule is too long. I mean, oh, everyone absolutely. seems to. He Harps on that a lot. I think expansion is not the greatest. Like, you know, if you took away like five teams, like, like he talks about there being like sub 500 playoff teams and like, you know, look at the East and maybe that's a realignment issue, but you could certainly make a strong argument that if there were like 26 teams versus 30, that like the overall level of play in the league would be a little bit better. Um, so, like, you know, he's in terms of like the destiny of the NBA, like, yeah, he's pretty wrong, but I think a couple of the things that he hammers are like pretty right on. Maybe I'm yeah. here. No, no, <laughs> I, I, I see what you mean. And, and I, you know, I don't think that's ever brought up as like, he is very, he's very anti-expansion um, because he thinks it ruins the rivalries. Um, and the other thing that he harps on a lot about is the idea of like these new, like self-made young millionaire owners. And they're in the team for they're 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 being used as tax write-offs like he's obsessed with the idea of like tax write-offs like i feel like he brings that up like five times i don't really understand taxes very well so i don't know how that all works but i um like it's hard for me to believe that you just buy the team to have a tax write-off but um uh, but i yeah i mean i I do think i i do see what you're saying james with the idea that um some of the things you know they're not exactly the same but they still certainly apply that are issues with the league that that are, you know, things that are still going on that are still, you know, like we talked about the, obviously the medical stuff and the stuff with team doctors and, you know, players are still pressured to play when, you know, they probably shouldn't. And, um, and it's still, it's still a grind for the guys. Absolutely. And, and, and the stuff with personalities, I feel like is still there. I mean, I think most of it, um, connects pretty well, but, um, yeah, it, it is really, um, uh, you know, it, it is really something to, um, to, to, to see, you know, one thing that's interesting, um, is there, there was a Oregon live, uh, blog the, the, from the Oregonian, um, where it was a review of the book, but he, he talked about like a, um, 1980 interview that they had with him, uh, about the book. And then apparently like during press conferences, like he would actually be like, he would be with the team during press conferences and he would like do things like he challenged, um, you know, the, um, Weinberg who was, I, I don't think he was the official GM, but he sort of had the role as we understand it, um, asking how much money the team made. And then he replied by asking Halberstam how much he made when Halberstam answered Weinberg didn't. And then later Halberstam got in a, um, 
uh, yeah, a press room shouting match with another um, Blazers, uh, actually the technical general manager, Harry Glickman, who's mentioned in the book, but not really drawn out much as a character. Um, and, uh, you know, they begin to shout a match with each other. And I just think it's really like, we didn't see any of that, like in the book, any of the sense that he's really like challenging management on these things at all, or there's like this abrasive relationship like that, that doesn't come out at all in the book, which I, I, I wouldn't necessarily think like he would mention like the specifics of it, but I do think like if that tension exists, you would somehow feel it there and you don't feel it there in, in the book at all. Do you think that could be yeah, the, that, the product of? Sorry, you go ahead, Curtis. Oh no, just just based off what uh, Jason just said, I think that that kind of uh, tightens up what we were talking about earlier uh, with Halberstam. Seems like he's less uh, pro management uh, as he is like anti no cut contracts for the players. Uh, so he's not like he's not like in the corner of management necessarily, but he's not exactly in favor of giving players all the money in the world, you know, quote unquote, all the money in the world uh, forever. Uh, they need to have like the carrot constantly put in front of them. They need to constantly try to get to it. Um, so I'm like imagining a basketball player with like a carrot tied around their head, like in front of them, <laughs> like on the little like the cartoons. It's like, I just keep going. You're almost there. I just keep going, try to get the carrot. And that's like how he wants the NBA players to be instead of like um, giving them a guaranteed contract. So, um, would have been nice if he had more of his um, shouting matches with ownership in the book because uh, he we've, we've mentioned it. But, yeah, he does a pretty poor job of really separating like this is so and so's opinion. Here's what I think of it. Um, yeah, this, that's not always clear when, uh, in the book as to whether or not he's supporting someone's opinion or whether he's just stating someone's opinion or when he's giving his own opinion on what's happening. I wonder if the lack of um, showing any like hostility between him and management in the book might be related to him being like a working journalist and you know wanting to gain access in the future with other people and not having it look like he's at odds with the people who allow him into their inner circle. I don't know. That's just kind of conjecture on my part. But do you think that might have had anything to do with it? I, I mean, I could definitely see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I mean, if you get access with the Blazers, that gives you access to a lot of, you know, just, you know, the, the doctor, the players, the management, if you get access to the Portland Bla- uh, Trailblazers franchise. But if you get access to Maurice Lucas, you get access to Maurice Lucas. whoop de doo You're not going to get a very large book out of that. So, uh, it does, like, this, not that Maurice was a bad – I mean, he's a very colorful man. So, like, uh, if you get access to one player, he's probably the best one to get. But um, – like it just makes more sense from like a yeah like a business perspective for like trying to write this book. It's going to pay off to have more access to the team than it is to have access to just individual players. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so you know, I, I, you know, we've already talked a little bit about um, you know the racial balance of the league. He had mentioned which which surprised me a little bit, but. That the um, you know the NBA apparently as late as sixty five was still seventy percent ish you know white which which I I mean I, thinking about it, I guess that makes sense but I just had that, that seems I mean it's obviously relatively recent compared to when this book is written only fourteen years or so um, and then by the you know the seventies it's um, it's about three fourths black um, and you know it, it gets certainly into some of the dynamics uh you know of um you know black players uh staying in portland which is a predominantly white city and kind of feelings toward that um you know white players 
uh, you know, uh, growing up, this generation growing up playing in a sport that was dominated by black players and how that sort of thing worked. And I think a lot of this kind of comes out um, in the 1990, or excuse me, the 1977 finals and how that is portrayed between the Blazers and the Sixers. The the, the Blazers are kind of like the team that plays the right way and passes, and they're sort of the stewards of the NBA, even though they, they did have um, Lucas and Twardzik, who were both ABA guys, but they were kind of that. They represented sort of that side of things in the narrative versus like the the playground, one-on-one, sort of more selfish Sixers, even though they had, you know, Julius Irving, who's just like an incredibly awesome and intelligent, smart and respected and, you know, great guy who also happens to be just an incredible, you know, just one of the um, greatest players of all time. And and you can do all these incredible things, you know, ducking the ball and so forth. So even though like you can see it, like if you're looking at it, like in you, you, you see what people mean when they say that, but it's definitely um you know, racialized thing, the way that, um, that matchup is described and even, you know, even somewhat the way that, um, um, Halberstam uh, presents it in the book. Well, yeah, like the, the, the Blazers, like they had a lot of white guys on the team. So they're like one of the bastions of, of like em- employing white people in the NBA at that time, I guess. Um, what is it? I think Maurice Lucas and Lionel Holland is like the only, almost, the only two like really good players on the team that were black on the Blazers. Uh, whereas on the Sixers, uh, you kind of flip it around, like only Doug Collins and he was getting older by this point, but Steve Mix, those are the only two like really good white players on that team. So just the visuals, like you look at the two teams, like one is predominantly black, the other one's predominantly white. Um, and, you know, there is truth to the Sixers. We're playing kind of a uh, more of a um, you know one-on-one style of basketball, and they uh, they admit as much. Uh, like you watch interviews with World Be Free, he's like, you know, we didn't want to pass the ball; we wanted to just shoot it. Like we wanted to take the great, the craziest shots and take like you know the take the guy one-on-one because that's how we want to play basketball. But, but you know, the the way it got blown up into a larger like you know the right way versus the wrong way how to play basketball like definitely had the 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 racial connotations on it that that yeah, that you that you were just mentioning. So. Um, yeah, you're going back and reading Bethel's finals sometimes gets a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that language was very lightly coded when they talked about it. But it is interesting that like that <laughs> argument um, still persists. In, I don't know if it's less... like I felt like that was... I was reading... Uh, you could have like changed the names and it could have been la- about last year's NBA finals. Obviously, it's like a much different context. But um, you've got like Golden State with their team ball versus like LeBron just going one-on-one. Um, I don't know what to make of that, but it, it just that narrative of it's impossible to divorce race from it in this context. So, like, you know, when you're talking about that team in that year, you have to. I wonder how that manifests itself like now. Um, if people are still using that to talk about race and just using it in teams where like the makeup doesn't apply as well, or if that's if there's room in that conversation for really just preferring like one brand of basketball over another. Um, well, you know, if you focus on certain individual players instead of the whole team, uh, you you might start to find the the coded language there again. Um, say a certain player from Australia and how he played in the most recent finals. Okay. 
I don't know. Could you be more specific? <laughs> Andrew Bogut? You're talking about Andrew Bogut. Oh, yeah, Andrew Bogut, yeah, man. People are just talking about his hustle, his, I, I, his yeah. Yeah. the most of his talent, just mm-hmm. really showing no, that's, guys who just had all this raw talent, but he showed them up. Man, it was yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> and we've talked about that on numerous times. And, and, and Charles Barkley, I think uh, we, we talked about this on podcast, and yeah, it's one of my least favorite things about sports. And it doesn't apply just to basketball. I mean, it, it's every sport. It goes to baseball as well. There's, you know, the scrappy white guy is making the most of his abilities and the, you know, athletically gifted, you know, Dominican player is so lazy. And if only he was, you know, tried harder, he'd hit 40 home runs a year. But he, you know, he loafs and he only hits 22. I mean, we see it with Yasiel Puig right now in the MLB or whatever. That, that's something that just unfortunately has never gone away. And I don't think it's ever going to go away, which is just terrible because it's 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 really one of the worst parts of like sports coverage and sports media in general, I think is. is yeah. And and as you said, it, we go back to the NBA finals. You know, we, we, we like to think of ourselves as the super progressive era or whatever. And you go to the NBA finals and yeah, you have a hustling white guy and he's making the most of his limited abilities. And, you know, yeah, even but whereas, you yeah. know, even though he's like six, four and, you know, exactly. Yeah, he's like a very like he's like a super like, like he's clearly a, like a very athletic guy. He's very tall, like he dominated college ball. Like, you know, yeah, he did it at a smaller school. But yeah, it's so but it's funny where you get a guy like a Kermit Washington in this book. And, and he's a guy we talk about who is a guy that I feel like made the most out of limited skills. And, you know, you sort of get that connotation from him in this book. And I, I, I think Hebesham does a good job of that. Whereas, you, you know, I've never heard of Kermit as that guy. You, you know what I mean? Like, that's never the narrative I've heard. The only thing you ever hear about Kermit Washington is that he, you know, viciously punched a white player or whatever, you know, and it didn't have to be a white guy or a, a black, but you know what I mean? That's what you hear about him and that's what you know about him. And yeah, it's, it's, that's just something that I, un- unfortunately, I don't think is ever going to leave sports media and it's, it's terrible. Yeah. It's the worst. Uh, one last thing I want to bring up uh, b- before we before we close is um, it kind of feeds into the sort of the expansion and, and the changes in the business was that, you know, spent a lot of time on the um, the issues with CBS um, and basically the idea that regular season coverage declined to the point where CBS was ignoring basically two thirds of the team. So there was basically two leagues. One had. um one was the whole league and the other was like a six or seven team league covered by CBS, which is basically its version of the NBA. So obviously the Celtics, the Knicks, the Lakers, and then, you know, whoever else might have been part of that group at the time. Um, and obviously we still have some of that with just, you know, the teams that dominate the national television um you know, there, there's still a lot of the same types of teams that are dominating the national television, whether they're good or not. Um, but I, I this is very much for me as a kid, because I, I started watching in the late 80s. And for me, the NBA like this really was absolutely the case. Like for me, the NBA was like the Lakers, the Celtics, the Pistons, Jordan and, you know, like a handful of other guys. I mean, it, it, I was not, you know, aware of probably half the players on half the teams in the league. And um, and, and I do think that this is like. I, 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 I mean, obviously there are so many more outlets to be able to watch your own team and watch your favorite team. But I do think like I, I still think an issue that is exists in, in today's NBA is like focusing on the quote unquote marquee teams um, while obviously they for, they draw the best ratings for a reason. Part of your growth is to be able to develop the younger players, the the star players like, you know, Anthony Davis, who's very rarely been on national television. Those guys don't have that opportunity and the, you know, that's maybe part of why some of the smaller markets don't do as well as they could do because um, they don't 
have this much of an opportunity to um, draw in that fan base. So I don't know. What do you guys think? I I think that's always yeah. And you mentioned of, of anybody you know growing up in and that's sports in general. I think we're, we're you know we're focusing on the NBA for the purposes of this podcast, but the MLB is is far worse in that sense where it's almost Yankees, Red Sox, and then maybe the Dodgers, and you know of every so often a team will kind of pop up and and go. But as far as like ESPN and Fox and those sort of things, I mean you're basically stuck with those three or, or four teams are every single year that are your main ones. The NBA though has absolutely always been that way, and it's it's. It, it's 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 got pros and cons. Like I see I see the reason why it happens and why it occurs and why it happened even then and and you know how it propelled the NBA to, to it, the heights it did eventually is you know it was the Lakers but it was also Magic you know it was the Celtics but it's Bird and, and it sort of always aligns with the stars of the league tend to be in those spots and yeah you'll get some guys who who will be from a smaller market and for a while they'll show their games or cover their games and, and do all that sort of stuff as long as they're a star and I think that's really the biggest thing that you, you kind of get a takeaway versus the teams you know. You know, for a while it was maybe just the teams, but now it's become such a star-focused league that you know a team like Oklahoma City—it's it, unheard of. You know, it, in 15 years we're gonna laugh at you know, oh my God, Oklahoma City was on you know national TV all the time or whatever. Like, and just knowing that, yeah, no, well they had you know two of the biggest stars in the league at the time or whatever. So I think that's what it more is. But yeah, it, it's it's a problem with the league, and it, it's hard to ever say that this league. I mean. W- we say in one breath, we always say, oh, it'd be sweet you know, if they showed more teams or whatever, but do we really want to watch like the Sacramento Kings and the Detroit Pistons on like a Tuesday? I mean, I do because I'm a weirdo, but like I don't know if that many other people do. Like I'm that weirdo who like roots for the NBA TV like game of the week to be like the two worst teams that I <laughs> never, never get to watch ever, you know, unless I have NBA TV or whatever. So I'm the weirdo that roots for that, but I don't know if everybody else kind of does want to see that. Or, you know, the, the, the general population kind of likes their stars, likes their good teams, likes their big teams, likes those markets. So I don't know how you really correct that problem, you know, now or, or in the future or, or ever really. Yeah, I grew uh, I grew up a Knicks fan, so basically the only thing I have going for me is that they did get coverage in the national media, um, so I can't complain too much about it. But like on a more serious like note, I, I think I mean I don't know. I think that like problem as much as it still exists is like really diminishing. Like didn't the um, didn't the finals this past year have like the, its highest ratings in a very long time? Um, and I guess Golden State is you know they're California or whatever, but they're you know. Not the biggest team in California, right? And certainly Cleveland, um, obviously, just you know, because LeBron's there. So, like, yeah, like what you were saying, Rich. Like, it's it, it does seem to have like uh, come a lot further toward being you know star focused rather than market. Um, and just with the internet and you know league pass and, uh, and people being able having a little bit more choice in what they watch, it seems to have. I don't know. Like, do you, do you think it's like um, people like growing up in Oklahoma or you know, I don't know, Sacramento aren't as into the game as they would be because of that? I don't know. I feel so well, divorced from like broadcast. Yeah, I'm from Chicago. Yeah. I can't really talk to you. I grew up when Jordan was in, <laughs> so I, I have no idea. So, Jason. I think it's less of a problem on the local level than it is like okay, I live in you know like I don't know. I, I live in um, I don't know whatever. We'll pick whatever city. Um, Raleigh, North Carolina. I really, I hear a lot about um, DeMarcus Cousins and I want to see him play. And like, I, I see these vines or whatever and I want to see him. And, and it's just kind of like the lack of opportunity there. Just like the lack of opportunity for those guys being like on national television and getting that exposure. Like, I think there's just some value in, um, 
getting those guys on TV a little bit more and making them seem like stars by being in premier games. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what you guys are saying makes sense, too. And it, I, I hardly think it's a huge thing. I just think, like, as far as talking about things that still, you know, are you could see kind of being an issue. I think that's still something that, that, that can apply, at least in some some ways. For sure. Well, well, one thing I just my thought on that is I think the NBA is uh, they're getting better at it. I think the last couple of years, but they're really unnecessarily inflexible about uh, how they, you know, uh, put together yes. their marquee games. It's like it. Th- the worst situation comes on freaking Thursday night on TNT when you can see it coming like a month away. Like, oh, God, this this game is going to suck because so and so's hurt and. This team has gone down to tanker. You know, you were thinking of the Lakers. Uh, I mean, like, the Lakers are going to be playing this team. Like, it's going to be a bloodbath and a blowout. It's like the NBA needs to schedule, like, five to six games every night that they're going to have national TV. So they have the option of uh, rotating. Like, all right, this game's going to suck. Well, let's move it to, I don't know, the Sacramento Kings and the Phoenix Suns because they both might be, you know, like, let's like around 500, but two 500 teams playing each other. You're probably going to get a good game as opposed to, the, the Thunder beating the shit out of the Lakers because Kobe right. Bryant's hurt. If Kobe's healthy these days, you're still going to get the shit beat out of him because Kobe's old and crappy now. So <laughs> it's like it's, they did that. They did yeah, that that's once last year, didn't they? I, I remember it being like a huge deal. They're like, all right, look, we're not we're going to show like this or whatever. And I think it was like Sacramento. I, I forgot what it was. They I recall f- it doing they flexed, once last year. What they, was they, it? Well, they flexed the Knicks out of like every single game. They were good, which is not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. they should. But you did remind me they do move all the good games to NBA TV. And if you don't have that, which is a separate package, like I mean, at least I don't know everywhere. A lot of times NBA TV is like separate from League Pass. So you've got to you pay for yeah. every game, and then you still got you don't even get the good one that's on that night because it's on NBA TV. Unless that you is true. Yeah, for people who pay, you know, who do the noble thing, you know, of course. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> NBA TV is great. Unfortunately, right now it's showing me a, a Pacers Knicks game from the uh, 2000, and I do not like that at all. I'm uh, unfortunately watching that as we're doing this podcast, and it's making me feel even more. You know how you said that this this uh, book kind of made you feel negative and depressed? Yes. Well, yeah. Watching these two teams in 2000. Happy birthday, Reggie. So, yeah. yeah. Oof. <laughs> I've been watching <laughs> Reggie Miller for the past two hours. It's, yeah. it's really a lot to handle. Nightmare. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're watching them. You're not listening to them. That's a good thing. Yeah. That's, yes. you know, you're right. It is on mute. And, and they, I watched an entire documentary uh, interview with him, and I didn't have to hear him say a thing. So it was great. Um. <laughs> So, uh, anything else that you guys want to bring up about the book before we uh, before we close it down? I just um, love uh, that the, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and you see the same stuff repeating over and over again. Um, especially with the the Knicks signing overpriced over the hill stars. That was getting <laughs> cover. Um, ho- hopefully, we got that out of our system now. But I, I took special glee in that one. I'm like, oh, so they've been doing that forever. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Port- Portland still has disgruntled big men leaving them. So yeah, the more, th- the more things change too. <laughs> All right. Um. So, uh, uh, James, would you like to uh, promote what you have to promote first? We'll give everyone a chance to do that. Absolutely. Love shilling. Um. So yeah, I've got a Twitter account, NBA Injury Report. The E in report is a three. I think you should follow that. And I have a podcast. Um, you can find it that same Twitter that comes out every Tuesday evening, all year long. We take no breaks. There is no off season for NBA injury report. So that's my plug. And Curtis. Uh, no, I, I got nothing to plug. Um, just 
Follow me on Twitter at Pro Hoops History. <laughs> the website is ProHoopsHistory.com. Um, all I'm doing these days is just slowly re-editing all my player bios because I'm eternally unhappy with my product. So I constantly just go back and re-edit the articles I've already written because, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. a little obsessive, but that's what i got time I, for I, these days. I, I've had a couple times where Google's fooled me into thinking you wrote about something and then I find out that's off. Well, you did write about it, but then it's offline. So I'm like, oh, like you know, curses, Curtis. You know, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I have to do my own research. Darn it, <laughs> you know. But but yes, no. But we do. I should put up like a paywall. There you go. That's not well, a bad actually, idea. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good. Uh, uh, that's a good idea, actually. Uh, um, but we can free access yes, that. There we go. Yeah, because so. we're awesome. You're you're yeah, yeah, the yeah. podcast, so you know. Yes, <laughs> right. um, You're friends of the site. You get it for free. There you yes. go. Yes. Well, we'll give it. We'll even do a coupon code or something yeah, on the yeah, site. Yeah. There so. you go. That's business transaction yeah, going exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Capitalism at work. We we are <laughs> right. We like New Age capitalism. They're also born again capitalism. So right. Um. So for us, you can um, you can follow us at Over and Back uh, NBA uh, on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, uh, we our podcast is housed at hardwoodproxism.com. Again, uh, check out the HP Big Summer Read on Breaks of the Game. Uh, some excellent stuff that we could not get into here. Um, you can go to our new uh, forums at overandbacknba.com if you want to talk about uh, classic uh, basketball because it's a lot of fun. Uh, keep listening to us. We also have our Top 50 project uh, going on throughout the offseason. We're talking about the uh, Top 50 players of all time. Curtis has been a big part of that project, which we appreciate. So uh, until next time, uh, thanks, everyone, and goodbye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.